This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History is a brand new book with lots of weird and wildly entertaining stories that haven't been covered on this podcast. Stories like the rise of everybody's favorite painter of the pretty, Claude Monet, and how all those water lilies and haystacks were actually subversive badassery. How some late 19th and early 20th century women may possibly be the first abstract artists. And what do toenail clippings and a chunk of Caroline Kennedy's birthday cake have to do with one of Andy Warhol's most enduring legacies. Art Curious, the book, will be released on September 15, 2020, but you can pre-order now to reserve your copy. Pre-order links are available in the show notes or at our website, artcuriousbook.com. That's artcuriousbook.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Art Curious Podcast, and we're smack dab in the middle of our interseason promotion of your top five episodes of Art Curious, as selected by the hundreds of you who took our listener survey this past summer. We've been counting down the episodes, and now we are approaching the summit. Today, here's your second favorite episode ever, and you already know that this is one of my personal favorites, too. It's a deep dive into the life and the works of one of my very favorite artists, the woman that we've discussed multiple times here and who was one of the first artists we ever covered on our show. She was the topic of our third ever episode. And I love that you love her too. So welcome back to the semi-charmed life of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. Our first listener comment today is from Miguel Palacio Barrientos in Medellin, Colombia. He wrote about this episode, I just love the podcast. It's perfect to listen to before going to bed. And the semi-charmed life of Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun is very relevant for this time, and especially to humanize a great artist going beyond her artistic life. Thank you again, Miguel, for your wonderful thoughts. Next, we've got a couple great voice memos, the first of which is from listener Connor Garrity. Episode 3, The Semi-Charmed Life of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, completely brought to life a portrait that I've seen so many times at my favorite museum in my home state of Connecticut. Instead of only focusing on the subject, I now see it and think about the person behind the paintbrush, the events she lived through, the relationships she had, and the legacy she's left behind. And that's all because of Art Curious. Connor, you've made me absolutely thrilled to hear this, and I love that you find such interest in the backstory of this fascinating artist, too. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas and doing so in such an eloquent way. Next up, another one from our listener, Brad Smith. My favorite Arcurus episode is episode three, The Semi-Charmed Life of Elizabeth Vigie Lebron. Uh, I knew nothing about her before this episode, not even her name. Uh, not long after I had listened to it, I was at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth with my much more artistically inclined girlfriend. Uh, we were having a museum date to somewhat balance out for uh, dozens of baseball games I had subjected her to. We walked past a portrait of a young, pretty woman with a black, 
plumed hat and a white blouse with a red ribbon. The plaque next to the painting explained that this was a self-portrait of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, and thanks to Art Curious, I knew about her. I think my girlfriend was quite surprised about how much I knew about some relatively unknown 18th century artist, and I was proud about how much I remembered about her and about just knowing something about art. I've listened to all your episodes and have learned so much from them all. Please keep up the wonderful work. I'm sure I have a lot more to learn. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brad, so much for your kind comments. And thank you to Miguel and Connor again. All of this means so much to me, seriously. And thank you again to the many who chose this as one of your top episodes. Together, you catapulted this one to our second place position in our listener poll. So here we go. Please enjoy this, The Semi-Charmed Life of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. I can't remember the first time I saw a reproduction of a portrait of Marie Antoinette the much-maligned Queen of France and wife to King Louis XVI. It seemed like she was everywhere in the history books that I read in school growing up. Hers is a face that is fairly recognizable. That high forehead, the tiny pursed lips, the overly coiffed gray wig. But I didn't think too much about her, either as a historical figure or a subject of oil paintings. That is, until I saw one particular image of her. Instead of a picture of the queen standing alone in all of her finery, here she was joined by three others, her children, daughter Marie-Thérèse and sons Louis-Charles and Louis-Joseph. Marie-Thérèse is leaning against her mother, gazing up adoringly and gripping Marie Antoinette's red velvet-decked arm. Her youngest son, still a toddler, sits with her on her lap while her oldest boy looks directly at us, the viewers. He does so with purpose. While staring at us, he sweeps back a swath of black cloth draped over an empty crib. This was the bed of his baby sister, Sophie, who died while the portrait was in process. She was not even one year old. Looking back to the queen, all of a sudden I see her differently. She meets the viewer's gaze with a stare that is unchallenging and calm. I see her as someone who cares very much, who loves her children, as we all do, and who has had to deal with unspeakable loss. And mostly, I see her as sorrowful, with very good reason. I see her not as a frivolous or careless woman. Suddenly, she is wonderfully human. What a marvelous spin and an important piece of propaganda, though eventually it would be rather unconvincing to the public. But what is even more marvelous is the backstory of the artist who created this portrait. Because the painter who was chosen to portray the highest woman in the land was another woman. Talk about a revolution. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today we are going to talk about one of the most staggeringly successful and crazy lucky artists of 18th century France, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history, I'm Jennifer Dassel.
If we take a moment to consider some of the world's most celebrated images, we will notice right away that a lot of them are of women. And further exploration allows us to find that they have something in common besides the gender of their subject matter. The artists who created them, of course, were almost always men. The journey from women as subject and muse to women as artists in their own right has not been a short or an easy road. The great news is that art historians from the past few decades have eagerly and judiciously sought to rewrite portions of the art historical canon to accommodate women who have been subsequently forgotten or dismissed. And many of these women artists were prolific in representations of themselves as much as other women in their social circles and were savvy enough to identify themselves as artists as well as ladies. Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun is one of those highly skilled women who successfully towed this line and broke out incredibly from the confines of her gender to rise among the ranks of the greatest artists of her time. Marie-Louise Elizabeth Vigée was born in Paris on April 16, 1755. Right off the bat, she had a couple of big things going for her that would highly influence her future. First of all, her family wasn't rich, but they had money, enough to get by. And second, her father, Louis Vigée, was himself a painter, a moderately successful one who was able to pass on his interests and know-how to his daughter, Elizabeth. It seems that her father was rather successful in this endeavor, because by the age of six, according to her memoirs, she was already doodling all over the walls of her convent school and subsequently getting in lots of trouble for it. As she recalled later in life, her father recognized her talent early. She wrote, quote, At seven or eight, I remember I made a picture by lamplight of a man with a beard, which I have kept until this very day. When my father saw it, he went into transports of joy, exclaiming, You will be a painter, child, if there ever was one, unquote. Elizabeth continued at school until she was 11 years old. Coming from the perspective of the 21st century, you might be thinking, wow, that's so young and she left school so early. But in fact, she was very privileged to attend school of any kind. Most girls in the 18th century, if they were educated at all, were schooled at home by a tutor or a governess if possible. Only girls with the familial and financial means were sent to convent or seminary schools. But regardless of their schooling location, girls were truly at an educational disadvantage. While boys were taught some basics of science, math, and other useful skills, girls were taught only what was deemed appropriate for them in order to make them appealing for marriage. Basic reading and writing, poetry recitation, musical skills, dancing, sometimes art, particularly the womanly media of watercolor or pastel, would make a cameo appearance in school curricula. All of this was only to snag a man. That, and having babies, was seen as the only true purpose of a woman's life. But clearly, these were not Elizabeth's true goals. No. After she completed her schooling, she returned to her family's home in Paris, thrilled at the prospect of continuing her artistic training. She spent the majority of her days in her father's studio, learning from his craft and experimenting with his paints and pastel crayons. Her father sincerely adored her and lavished his attention on her. This was a marked contrast to her mother, who, though she truly loved her daughter, visibly acted with a warmer preference towards her son, Elizabeth's younger brother, Etienne. 
So it is understandable that Elizabeth was crushed when her father died in May of 1768 and left her without her greatest supporter, teacher, and ally. As she wrote, quote, So heartbroken was I that it was long before I felt equal to taking up my pencil again. Unquote. Luckily, Elizabeth's mother was wise enough to recognize that art was her daughter's best means to work through her grief, and so she encouraged her to visit the galleries at the Luxembourg Palace to study and copy from the great artists there. Artists like Rubens, Rembrandt, Greuze. During her early teen years, Elizabeth improved so quickly that she began to garner attention from some of the most prominent Parisian artists of the day. One of them, Joseph Veronet, encouraged her to continue her training by only two means, by studying from the old masters and studying the natural world around her. They would be her two greatest teachers. And from there, her artistic style grew and developed naturally. By the age of 15, Elizabeth Viget was successful enough that she was able to contribute significantly to her family's income by painting portraits by commission. She received a rather lucky break when she was summoned by the Duchess Duchart to paint her portrait, owing to Elizabeth's spying-slash-scouting of the Duchess on her frequent walks through the gardens of the Palais Royal. The Duchess was kindly towards the teenager and hired her, but who knows if she had heard of the girl's talent or if she was just being generous. It turns out, though, that the girl could actually paint really, really well. And so the Duchess told all her friends and fellow courtly ladies, who subsequently sought Elizabeth out in order to commission her to paint their portraits. Soon, the artist's meager home studio was a hub of frequent wealthy visitors eager to be memorialized in oil and canvas. Besides her obvious talent, Elizabeth had a few other things going for her. The first was that she herself was a beautiful girl. She had lush, shiny brown hair, deep pools of brown eyes, and a perfect rosebud mouth. Her good looks certainly didn't hurt her, particularly when it came to opportunities to paint portraits of well-connected Parisian men. This turned out to be somewhat of an aggravation for Elizabeth, though, who, at the time, didn't want the attention placed on her face and body, but on her artwork. However, if her beauty brought more commissions through the door, so be it. Let them think I am pretty, she thought. More seriously, though, she had something else going for her that would influence her work much more in future commissions, and this was that she was a very uncompromisingly great flatterer. She used her convent schooling to true advantage here, because instead of displaying her charm and wit in order to snag a husband, she turned them towards her clients. With compliments and a little bit of sweet talk, she set them at ease, allowing not only to make them comfortable enough to pose for her, sometimes for hours on end, but to also find her appealing enough, personally, to continue to recommend her to their friends. And that's just the verbal form of flattery. Perhaps more important was the second form of flattery, the visual kind. Vijay became famous in life for the ability to make all of her clients just that much prettier or more handsome. With her paintbrush, she made sallow faces turn rosy and youthful. Weak chins were straightened, and large noses became somewhat more streamlined. All in all, she was able to constantly distill her clients' visages down to their essences, and then she improved on them. Not enough to be considered an inaccurate depiction, but enough to make a sitter feel rather good about himself or herself. And in a world before the invention of photography and capturing one's actual likeness, 
The oil portrait was king in terms of the preservation of one's existence and as a means of self-promotion. So when you find someone that makes you look better than you actually do in real life, you're going to want to hold on to that person and tell everyone you know all about her. Elizabeth soon became the talk of the town, and members of the highest ranks in society requested her services. But life wasn't perfect. Though she was making a credible and decent living through her work, her home life was still shattered due to her father's death. Out of financial need, her mother had remarried, and Elizabeth's new stepfather was a brute who began squandering Elizabeth's earnings. Instead of helping her family and herself, her money was going nowhere but into the hands of her stepfather. So it was at this time, in her late teenage years, that Elizabeth began seriously thinking of a way out. That opportunity came in 1774 when two significant events took place. The first was that she was elected to the Academy of St. Luke, one of the many painters' guilds throughout Europe. In particular, the Academy of St. Luke was especially enjoyed by artists who were unable to access the prestigious and selective Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, which at the time very rarely admitted women. This gave her career even more credibility and respectability, as well as allowing her to work in an official capacity. It turned out that she had been considered an illegal business holder previously, as she did not have an official painting guild affiliation. This newfound affiliation also led to the second big event of 1774, which was her meeting with a local art dealer and connoisseur named Jean-Baptiste Pierre Lebrun. As you can guess from his familiar surname, he was the man whom Elizabeth would end up marrying two years later in 1776. Now, let me save you some curiosity and tell you that this marriage, for both parties, was mostly one of convenience and not a love match. She wanted more than anything to find a way out from under her stepfather's shadow, and having her own household would have given her more control over her finances. Plus, her mother strongly persuaded her to follow the route toward marriage. For stability, sure, but also for money, as she was under the mistaken assumption that Lebrun was a wealthy man. And on Lebrun's part, he was surely hoping to benefit monetarily from Elizabeth's burgeoning career, since he wasn't as well off as others would have believed. This would later escalate into a squandering of funds that echoes Elizabeth's stepfather. It seems that, with the men in her life, she just couldn't win. About marriage, Elizabeth was rightly very torn, as she wrote in her memoirs, stating, quote, So little did I feel inclined to sacrifice my liberty, that even on the way to the church I kept saying to myself, Shall I say yes, or shall I say no? Alas, she adds, I said yes, and thereby merely exchanged present troubles for others." Unquote. Of course, Elizabeth wrote the previous statement with the wisdom of hindsight. She obviously could not have known at the time that her marriage was not going to be pure bliss. And really, at the beginning, even with the full acceptance of it as a marriage of convenience, her union with Lebrun proved beneficial to her career. First of all, Monsieur Lebrun took his new wife around Europe, particularly to Holland and Flanders, or present-day Belgium, to continue her education and study the great Dutch and Flemish masters, particularly her favorite, Rubens. 
Most importantly, as a prominent art dealer, he had access to the very top of Parisian society as well as to the art world in general. How better to further your artistic career than with those two doors swung widely open? And we certainly can't forget that, again, this isn't the 21st century that we are talking about. It is the late 18th century, and women didn't have the same access, education, and abilities afforded to their male counterparts. It feels awful and sexist to admit this, but Elizabeth may have benefited from her husband's access in order to become the painter that we know today. But knowing these sexist limitations just makes her accomplishments, and particularly what happened next, all the more fascinating. And that's coming right up after this break. Stay with us. If you're a regular listener to Art Curious, then you've heard me thank our production partner, Kabunki, for making each of our episodes sound so incredible. They've been with us since the beginning, and now they're here for you too. Need production and editing help for your own podcast? Sure. Full-service video for your film or marketing project? You bet. How about original content for your website or campaign? No sweat. Kabuki does it all for video, audio, or whatever your medium. Their award-winning team has the tools and talent to elevate everything you do. Get to know our friends at Kabunki like we do and tell them our curious sent you. Visit kabunki.com. That's K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. Kabunki, a silly name, but superb content. There's a world of entertainment options out there. And by that, I mean there's a lot of compelling international shows you may be missing out on. It's time to burst the domestic TV bubble and check out Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a commercial-free streaming service that's rooted in British television. It's home to sophisticated and artful storytelling with top-rated mysteries, addicting dramas, heartfelt comedies, and so much more. Unlike other British streaming services, Acorn TV has content from Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and beyond. If you're a fan of quirky British comedy, then the other one is a must-watch. It follows two sisters from very different worlds who had no idea that the other existed until their father drops dead. And for you Downton Abbey fans out there, the other one features a hilarious performance from beloved Siobhan Finneran. I always find something new to watch on Acorn TV because it's loaded with thousands of hours of binge-worthy content. You can stream it on all your favorite devices for just $5.99 a month. Recently, I've been loving to watch 1900 Island, in which four families are essentially going back in time to live on this deserted island as if they were living in the year 1900. So escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Try Acorn TV for free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's A-C-O-R-N dot T-V, code ARTCURIOUS, to get your first 30 days for free. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. Two years after Elizabeth officially became Madame Lebrun, she received a rather shocking but very welcome request. Could she please come at her earliest convenience to Versailles at the request of Queen Marie Antoinette? The Queen's mother, Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, had requested a full-length portrait of her daughter, and so for this official commission, Marie Antoinette could have complied and gone with one of the usual court painters who served her husband, for example. But she made an independent decision to choose instead a young rising star of the Parisian art world, the woman who was known as Madame Lebrun. She definitely had a fair reason to make this decision, because as she wrote to her mother in November 1776, quote, painters are the death of me and drive me to despair, unquote. She had been so devastated by poor and unflattering likenesses in the past that she knew she needed someone really great for this important familial request. She needed someone who could flatter. She needed someone who could make her look even better than in reality. She needed Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. Think of how revolutionary this request must have been at the time. Instead of trotting the path assigned to her, Marie Antoinette broke free and made her own choice. And that must have felt like a risky move to her advisors and courtiers. Madame Lebrun was a portraitist on the rise, but she surely wasn't a known entity to the court. And second of all, she was a woman, for goodness sake. You could almost hear the derision and unfounded concern in their voices. Would Vigée Lebrun's work be any good, compared to that of her male counterparts from the Royal Academy of Painting? Well, Marie Antoinette wasn't concerned in the slightest. In fact, she had already enjoyed Vigée Lebrun's work firsthand, as her brother-in-law, the Comte de Provence, had already been painted by Elizabeth. And there was also the fact that the Queen knew that Elizabeth was of similar age to her. In fact, they were born in the same year. It isn't hard to imagine that having one's painter be of one's own age and gender would make for a much more comfortable experience, as well as a possibly more beneficial one. Could Elizabeth, Marie Antoinette wondered, paint her in a more flattering and pleasing light, understanding her on a different level as a wife, woman, and mother, if not queen? Marie Antoinette was right not to worry, because Elizabeth surely knocked the commission out of the park. The official portrait, titled Marie Antoinette in Court Dress, was sent to Empress Maria Theresa, who loved it so much that she immediately wrote her daughter to tell her so. Marie Antoinette herself so enjoyed the portrait that she immediately requested a replica made so that she could hang it in her own chateau. And various other replicas were sent around the world to other courts. One was even sent to the U.S. Congress. The painting, per the Austrian Empress's request, presents Marie Antoinette in full regalia, draped in a silvery satin dress with a full train and an even fuller skirt. She is portrayed in full majesty, standing nearly spotlit in a room filled with heavy drapery, thick carpets, and one towering, huge column. 
if there was ever a very queenly portrait of the queen, it is surely this one. So pleased was the queen then that she made Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun her official court portraitist. One painting was all it took, and Vigée Lebrun's life changed forever. Elizabeth's memoirs include some truly beautiful writing about her relationship with the queen. Years after the queen's death, she wrote lovingly of Marie Antoinette's beauty and grace, which in itself shows a rather extraordinary devotion, particularly when Marie Antoinette's beauty was never something that was celebrated. Of her, the artist wrote, quote, Marie Antoinette was tall and admirably built, being somewhat stout, but not excessively so. Her arms were superb her hands small and perfectly formed, and her feet charming. She had the best walk of any woman in France, carrying her head erect with a dignity that stamped her queen in the midst of her whole court. Her majesty mean, however, not in the least diminishing the sweetness and amiability of her face. To anyone who has not seen the queen, it is difficult to get an idea of all the graces and all of the nobility combined in her person. But the most remarkable thing about her face was the splendor of her complexion. I have never seen one so brilliant, and brilliant is the word, for her skin was so transparent that it bore no umber in the painting. Neither could I render the real effect of it as I wished. I had no colors to paint such freshness, such delicate tints, which were hers alone, and which I have never seen in any other woman." Unquote. Throughout the 1880s, Elizabeth completed multiple royal commissions for portraits of the queen, as well as commissions for portraits of the queen's children. And then, like others had before her, Marie Antoinette happily recommended Elizabeth's service to her closest friends within the royal circle, therefore ensuring the artist's livelihood. And once Elizabeth started officially painting for the queen, everyone from the upper crust wanted to have their portraits done by the queen's official portraitist, too. From that point forward, the Lebrun couple, as well as their only child, a young daughter named Julie, lived in high style. But this doesn't mean that Elizabeth was going to sit back and rest on her laurels. No way. Thanks to the Queen's intervention, she sought and was allowed entry to the Royal Academy in 1783, which not only confirmed her status as a member of the upper echelon of French artists, but also afforded her the right to enter her works in the most important state-run exhibitions. However, like anyone or anything who has gained such a stunning amount of success and popularity, she began to experience a fair amount of backlash from high-minded detractors. Some were jealous of her talents, surely, but many were derisive of her ability to enter the academy at all, since her husband's career as an art dealer would normally have precluded her from entry. And on top of all that, the queen, not a universally loved figure in France, had stepped in to insist on Elizabeth's inclusion. And then there was the painting that Elizabeth submitted as her so-called reception piece, a monumental work titled Peace Bringing Back Abundance. Many artists and critics considered it to be overreaching, as the subject matter, which fell into the highest category of artistic production known as history painting, was traditionally seen as being under the purview of quote-unquote real artists, by which they meant male artists, first of all, but certainly not portraitists, who were considered lesser artists. But again, to her credit, Vichy Lebrun's work stood on its own merits, maybe even a little too well. In fact, it was during this time that rumors began to spread that her painting was so well executed 
that Elizabeth must have been assisted by another artist who, at best, helped her finish her works, and at worst, created them entirely. Because surely a girl couldn't paint this well, they said. This would end up being a theme that unfortunately dogged Elizabeth long after her death. And even until the latter part of the 20th century, some Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun works were still being labeled as part of the oeuvre of the neoclassical master, Jacques-Louis David. In September of 1785, four years before the onset of the vicious and violent French Revolution, Marie Antoinette's reputation had begun to fall precipitously. She was never vastly beloved to begin with, owing to her Austrian nationality, with Austria being a sworn enemy of France for many years. But in the 1780s, she began to be seen as a spendthrift and out of touch. The king's court opted for a little propaganda and came to Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun with specific instructions. Paint a monumental canvas featuring the queen and her children as a way of restoring the public's good favor toward the queen. And what better way to do that than to show her as a devoted mother? Motherhood was actually all the rage at this point in time, and Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun knew it. In fact, she had carved a small niche for herself as a portraitist to young French noblewomen who wished to be depicted with their children. Believe it or not, this was a fairly new concept, because prior to the 18th century, children were basically viewed as tiny adults and were expected to act that way. And mothering was seen in many ways as being a poor person's job. It was considered very low class to breastfeed, for example, so many children from the upper class or nobility were sent away to the care of wet nurses for their infancy, and many ended up being raised away from home for the first years of life. It wasn't until later in the 18th century that children began to be cherished as integral parts of a loving, happy, and close family. Perhaps not coincidentally, the rise of the cult of childhood, as it was called, coincided directly with the rise of the cult of domesticity, which celebrated wifely and motherly duties as a calling of womanhood. Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun surely wasn't immune to the effects of these new modes of thinking, and as a woman who not only had a successful career, but was also connected to the royal court, she was probably vilified by some men who perceived her as being an outsider of her supposed natural realm. As a move of smart propaganda on her own part, Elizabeth would create numerous portraits of her small daughter Julie, as well as two gorgeous canvases depicting her embracing Julie in a shower of maternal affection. These are two of my personal favorite works by Lebrun. Her aim, in part, was to say, See, I am a mother and an artist, and I can do both very well. The monumental portrait of Marie Antoinette with her children, however, wasn't so successful. Technically, it is a tour de force on Elizabeth's part, based on traditional Madonna and child images from the Italian Renaissance, and from my perspective, it admirably meets its goal of humanizing the reviled queen. It is easy for me to look at Marie Antoinette's sad eyes and feel pity and sympathy for her. But for the Parisians of the late 18th century, the damage had already been done and no oil painting, regardless of its size or technical prowess, was going to change their opinion of the woman they referred to as the Austrian bitch. So, of course, she couldn't have known it, but Marie Antoinette's days were numbered, and as the months ticked ever closer to 1789, public opinion continued to sour. Unfortunately, 
Elizabeth's connection to the Queen, the royal court, and the access she received to the upper echelon of society also made her a prime target for slander. By the time the revolution burst forth in July of 1789, Elizabeth had suffered a great deal of character assassination in the myriad newsletters and small presses of Paris and its environs. She had considered the Queen to be a friend, and so when the mobs of violent and angry citizens marched on Versailles later that year in order to capture the royal family and install them forcibly back in Paris, Elizabeth actually feared for her own safety. Her meteoric rise had been too closely linked to the monarchy, and she too would have been brought down if she hadn't made a drastic decision. On August 6, 1789, Elizabeth packed up her daughter, Julie, and her governess, and together the three women fled under cover of night to safer locales. You might be tempted to think that Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun's career was over, or that it was sure to go downhill now that she no longer had French royal commissions on which to rely. And that would be completely wrong. In fact, Elizabeth was supremely lucky to have gotten herself away from Paris and into exile. Not only did it possibly save her life, as well as the lives of her loved ones, but it ushered in a whole new clientele, as the nobility of other European nations suddenly became fair game for artistic capture. Over the next 12 years of her life, she would move between Austria, Italy, England, Germany, Switzerland, and finally Russia, where she spent a significant amount of her time. And in each location, Elizabeth did what she does best charmed and flattered, and wisely used her talents to continually serve her clients' best interests. She may no longer have the ability to paint her beloved queen, as we know Marie Antoinette had met her terrible fate at the guillotine in 1793, but Elizabeth nevertheless painted dukes and princes, ministers and musicians, writers, actresses, and ambassadors. As it had been in France, her reputation preceded her, and she was celebrated around the continent for her beauty, brains, and especially for her artistic talent. This isn't to say that things always went smoothly for her, but she had the smarts and the guts to make the right decisions to minimize the damages. For example, she desperately missed her home and her Parisian coterie. So in 1792, she left Rome where she had set up a very popular painting studio specializing in portraits of wealthy noblemen from Italy and abroad who were enjoying the grand tour of the continent. She hoped to travel back to Paris, but she was deterred when she began to hear the horror stories of the capital streets running red with blood from almost daily massacres foreshadowing the transition from French Revolution to the Reign of Terror. The monarchy had been abolished, and the king and queen were both to meet their deaths the following year. Plus, Elizabeth was well aware that, as a royalist, she was going to be considered a counter-revolutionary and would most likely be taken to the guillotine herself. So she made the logical decision to make an about-face and continue her self-imposed exile as she traveled first to Milan, then on to Vienna, and finally to St. Petersburg, where she spent six of her 12 years away. Elizabeth's self-imposed exile soon turned official, meaning that her name was included on circulated lists noting her status as an émigré whose property left behind in France could then be confiscated and redistributed. Now, this posed a big problem not necessarily for Elizabeth herself, but for her husband. He had been living off of his wife's fortunes and good luck for so long that everything in their Parisian home basically had belonged to her, and so he stood to lose everything if he was still connected to her. For better or worse, then, 
he made the rash decision to divorce his wife in June 1794 so that he could continue living in their home amongst their finery. Not that it made a huge difference to Vijay Lebrun at this point. When she settled in St. Petersburg, she quickly got to work and began to claim ridiculously high prices for her portraits. It is clear that some felt that her prices were practically exorbitant, and as one count mentioned in a letter to a colleague, quote, Madame Lebrun is paid a thousand, two thousand rubles for a portrait, as one might pay two guineas in London, unquote. At the end of the 18th century, she had amassed enough of a fortune that she was able to rent her own huge apartment overlooking the gorgeous winter palace of the Russian monarchy. Not that the monarchy was very interested in Vijay Lebrun. Empress Catherine the Great was still alive when Elizabeth made her transition to St. Petersburg, and she took an almost immediate dislike to the painter. Because, well, she was French. But Elizabeth's lack of imperial commissions did not affect her in the slightest, as the Russian nobility welcomed her nonetheless. In 1799, Elizabeth was met with the first of several personal tragedies. Her daughter Julie had fallen in love with a man named Gaetan Nigri, a French secretary to the Russian Count Chernyshev. Julie, against the wishes of her parents, married Gaetan in St. Petersburg when she was 19 years old. Elizabeth was distraught at the news, but her daughter was independent and rather stubborn, so there was nothing she could do to stop the union. A few years later, in 1802, Elizabeth was finally able, for the first time since 1789, to return to Paris after her ex-husband had lobbied unfailingly to allow her to be granted re-entry and French nationality after so many years of living in exile. But Paris had changed utterly since the dawn of the revolution. We can imagine that she probably barely recognized the city she so deeply loved. And then there was her relationship with her ex-husband. It wasn't full of animosity exactly, but remember that there wasn't a whole lot of love there either. Combined, these two factors incited in Elizabeth another round of wanderlust. Onwards she went again, moving from England to Switzerland and back again to France, making portraits of many of the greatest minds of her day along the way. The Prince of Wales, opera singers, and writers like Lord Byron and Madame de Stael. In the early 1800s, Vijay Lebrun lost all of those who were particularly close to her. Her husband first, who died of cancer in 1813, and later her brother, who died as an alcoholic in 1820. But the biggest and most terrible blow came in 1819, when her only child, Julie, died, probably from complications from syphilis. Mother and daughter had had a strained relationship for a few years, since Elizabeth approved neither of Julie's husband nor her friends. And when Julie eventually separated from her husband, she began to fight with her mother over financial issues. Soon, Elizabeth and Julie had stopped speaking to one another, and I have been unable to verify if the relationship was patched up before Julie's untimely death. But if there ever was a survivor, it was Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun. She always transcended. She rose above her own social class, her education, heck, even her gender, to become one of the most famous women of her time, one who was able to independently run and manage her own finances, time, and affairs. And surely she knew this, understanding that she was in a truly fascinating and unique position. So in 1825, she began writing her memoirs, 
which would eventually be published in two volumes in 1835 and 1837. In it, she not only detailed her life beginning with her childhood and family life throughout her old age, but also dedicated segments of it to her own instructions and details for artistic training. Essentially, it acts as a small manual for her theories on painting, technique, and portraiture. And from it, you can glean information about the methods she used to become a highly sought-after artist. For example, Vijay Lebrun wrote, quote, Before you begin, talk to your model. Try several different poses. Choose not only the most comfortable, but also the most fitting for the person's age and character, so that the pose will only add to their likeness." Unquote. And remember all that talk earlier about flattery and charm? Elizabeth speaks directly to the importance of this in her memoirs, writing, quote, "...you should try and complete the head, or at least the basic stages, in three or four sittings. Allow an hour and a half for each sitting, two hours at the most." or the models will grow bored and impatient and their expression will change noticeably, a situation to be avoided at all costs. This is why you should allow models to rest and aim to keep their attention as long as possible. My experience with women has led me to believe the following. You must flatter them, say they are beautiful, that they have fresh complexions, etc. This puts them in good humor and they will hold their position more willingly. The reverse will result in a visible difference. You must also tell them that they are marvelous at posing. They will then try harder to hold their pose." Unquote. An artist who actually cares about the comfort of her sitters, and who knows the importance of their mindsets and how it could affect their experience, as well as her business? No wonder she was so popular. I'd want to hire an artist like that. Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun's popularity continued unabated. She lived a long life, and she was 87 when she finally died in Paris in 1842. But time inevitably marches on, and tastes and styles change with the seasons. By the second half of the 19th century, brushwork started becoming looser and colors brighter as artists began shifting towards experimentation that would eventually bring us the Impressionists and more. 18th century portraiture, then, fell out of fashion, and for the majority of the generations that followed, Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun was forgotten or was a purely unknown name. Ask anyone on the street, surely they have heard of Leonardo da Vinci or Pablo Picasso. But ask them to name a woman artist, especially one who isn't from the 20th century like Frida Kahlo or Georgia O'Keeffe, and they might come up short. And they're probably not going to pull the name Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun out of thin air. In 1971, Art historian Linda Nochlin, in the midst of the tumult of the second wave of feminism, published an iconic essay in the journal Art News titled, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? If you're a student of art history, you're probably nodding right now, because this article is truly famous, and it aimed to answer the questions stipulated in the title, and elucidated the many reasons, educational, gender-based, and so forth, as to why, according to Nochlin, there haven't been any great women artists. But it seems to me, and I know I'm not alone here, that Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun was, and is, a great woman artist. It also begs the question, what is greatness, and how can you define it? If you define it simply by popularity, then it would mean that Thomas Kincaid, the quote-unquote painter of light, whose schmaltzy canvases you could buy at nearly every American mall in the past 20 years, could surely be called one of the greatest artists of the century. 
Sorry, fans of Thomas Kincaid, I mean no offense. Or do you define greatness by financial success? Is it in standing the test of time? What is standing the test of time, really, when art and culture are constantly being reappraised? Or does it mean it all simply comes down to personal opinion? But if we base greatness on any of those factors, then let me tell you, in my opinion, Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun is truly one of the greats. In a time and a place that was not hospitable to women, especially not to women artists, Elizabeth Vijay Lebrun did more than flourish. She soared. Okay, we did it. That was your number two choice. But now you have to come back in two weeks to hear your top favorite. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this listener favorite episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. And our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We're a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on sponsors, advertisers, and donations to keep us going. So if you enjoy the show and have the means, please consider giving $10 to help us out, and thank you for your kindness. You can help our show as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And believe me, it makes a huge difference and helps new listeners to tune in. For more details about our show, including any images mentioned in this episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back with us in two weeks when we explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history, including your favorite episode of all time. See you then.